We talked tonight about uh, the newsmen, about the journalists, with an eminent American journalist who's also very interested in analyzing the journalism of the present. He does that on his Fox News Watch program, uh, which appears weekly. And in case you haven't yet caught on, my guest is Eric Burns. And he does that with regard to uh, early America in a wonderful new book titled Infamous Scribblers, The Founding Fathers and the Rowdy Beginnings of American Journalism. Infamous Scribblers is a comment, is a direct quotation from an eminent early American. And perhaps, Milt, and I think this would surprise a lot of people, in my view, the most savaged person in the history of this country by journalists. It's hard to, to, to understand that now. George Washington. We're talking about the ultimate figure in our uh, uh, secular pantheon. I think Gary Wills calls him the original marble man. Yes. And, and one, of the, one of the unusual reactions I had upon uh, finishing this book and, and learning about Washington's relationship to journalism, and I know this was a foolish reaction, but you're never going to hear these, two, these words in, in, in the same sentence again. I ended up feeling sympathy for the heroic George Washington, not because of the way he reacted to the press so much, but because he was such a victim of it. Not only did he call reporters infamous scribblers, but uh, Jefferson tells us that once he was sitting there reading a newspaper, published, by the way, by Benjamin Franklin Bache, Franklin's grandson, who was a vile journalist, and, and uh, Washington was reading an article in the paper and was so upset that he pounded the table and said, damn. <laughs> now, Milt, I've read... Only a, time he was ever heard to say that word. I have read a lot about Washington over the yeah. years, and to me, that's the, that's the most incendiary thing he's ever out well, of. Well, what did they go after him for? That's, that's not given in our present history books at all, obviously. There are a lot of reasons. First of all, he was a pretty inefficient military leader in the French and Indian War. Actually, mm -hmm. he was not a leader at the time, but he made some very bad decisions. Uh, you know, the Revolutionary War started out very poorly. When we won, I, I, I think what the press disliked most about him, Milt, was his bearing. He was naturally a man of tremendous dignity. Some people would take it a step further than dignity and say he was regal. They would take it a step further than that and say, we just defeated George III. Now this guy wants to be George I. So for his military incompetence earlier and for his manner, which seemed so, to some people, so overbearing later, he was a constant press but target. But when he enters the presidency, he is already called the father of his country. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would think that he becomes something of a sacred figure, and uh, the journalists would back off. One would one would think that, but in fact, he became, as one might today, uh, being more in the public eye, uh, an even greater target. Well, maybe that's what we do with presidents. I've got two wonderful quotations in front of me. Uh, one president said, can you, do you recognize the source of this? Uh, the man who reads nothing at all is better educated than a man who reads nothing but newspapers. Jefferson? That is Thomas Jefferson. And another more recent president said, if one morning I walked on top of the water across the Potomac River, the headline that afternoon would read, President can't swim. Now, I'm going to guess Lincoln. No, no, much more recent. That's Lyndon Johnson. 
But you know what happened to Lincoln once? Uh, this isn't in the book because I'm dealing with with the yeah. colonial period. But Lincoln once once gave a, a long speech on a hot day. Milton was exhausted at the end of it, so his supporters carried him, literally carried him off stage, and the headline read, uh, "Lincoln too weak to walk." Yeah. You know. So it's 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 all a matter of interpretation, and journalists have, since the very beginning of journalism in this country, often looked for the worst of possible interpretations. And the beginning of journalism in this country, I learned from your book, uh, which I've been reading with great fascination, uh, is uh, in 1690, some guy from England who comes over mm -hmm. and tries to start an what we would call a newspaper, or what then they called a broadsheet, mm -hmm. in Boston. He manages to get out one edition. The first American newspaper lasted for a grand total of one issue. Yes. Now, it would surprise you if you started reading it, which I did, because the first paragraph in it, Milt, it was called Public, uh, Public Occurrences, was was very benign. It was, it, as a matter of fact, it was a, it was a plea that the Indians, and that's what uh, the paper called them at the time, that's what they were called at the time, and the white men get together and have a day of Thanksgiving to, to celebrate their amity. From that point on, public occurrences became the National Enquirer. Mm -hmm. And a few paragraphs later, there was a, a rumor. Well, on this one page. Yes, yes. It, it, it didn't go very far before it, before it sank into the depths. But uh, one of the items, uh, uh, and it was identified as a rumor, was that the King of France was having sex with his son's wife. Sex? Sex. Um, we don't have to go into more detail than that, mm -hmm. do we? Uh, well, we know about the French. Even then, we knew about the French. <laughs> yes, well, we also don't know if this was true. It was yeah. identified as a rumor. The Massachusetts authorities did not like the fact that it was in the paper, even identified as a rumor. They shut down the paper after a single issue. Look, here's what's, here's, here's, here, here is just what is so fascinating to me about this whole topic. And I, I managed to go through the writing of an entire book. And, you know, that can be a slogging process without ever losing this this fascination, this almost awe at this fact. The golden age of this country's founding was the gutter age of its journalism. When, when our real greatest generation, uh, Washington, Adams, Franklin, Jefferson, uh, when those men trod the earth, newspapers were worse than they've ever been before. Well, were they it's amazing. Were they really newspapers? You raise an interesting question of a more general sort in the first chapter. And the theme recurs is, oh, do people really need the news? Do they really have a concept of the news in those days? Or when does it emerge as a human need to find out uh, current affairs and to get reports from elsewhere? The point is very well taken. One of the reasons journalism had a hard time catching on, both abroad and in this country, was people couldn't understand the concept because their lives were very narrow. They, they, they wanted to know what was going on with their families. Well, their families worked the fields or worked in the shops with them. Uh, they wanted to know the weather because of their crops, and, and they, they, they wanted very much to know about the Almighty. Uh, they didn't need intermediaries, meet, uh, uh, Milt, to tell them about any of these things. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that the literacy rate back then was so high and that newspapers eventually did have the influence that they did was that people cared so much about their faith, and you had to read in order to gain salvation from the Bible. You suggest that newspapers really began as a form of blackmail, a form of blackmail invented in um, 
the Florence of the Medici's by a mm. fellow named Pietro Aretino. Aretino, yes. Tell us about Pietro. He, he, well, there's not much known about him, and that's probably a good thing. But he is described by uh, the late historian Neil Postman as a Renaissance blackmailer and pornographer. And uh, that's the first newspaper that we know of. It was it was uh, published within a few years of movable type. And you know what he did, Milt? I guess he was quite innovative. He 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 uh, he preceded the uh, mafia in coming up with the old protection racket. Mm -hmm. He would go to people and he would say, I'm going to write an article about some nefarious thing that you've done. And the person would say, I haven't done this nefarious thing. And this uh, Pietro would say, I don't care. I'm writing this article unless you, and we're not sure what he did, whether he asked for money, whether he asked for services. But the first newspaper was a form of protection. And maybe that's where the, uh, you know, the mafia got the idea. And it ran for quite a number of years, did it? I don't know how many years it ran for, but the interesting thing about it was that it wasn't terribly influential because the papers that succeeded it uh, were not, in Europe that is, uh, were not nearly that disgusting. Is that a racket that has been reinvented again and again by journalists? Not that, as far as I know, no. None of these guys in colonial America were uh, using their broadsheets for blackmailing purposes? No, they weren't. They were using them because they were they were they were just astonishingly passionate. I mean, to me, the explanation for the wonder that I was expressing mm -hmm. to you a little earlier about uh, uh, a glorious time and inglorious journalism, there were two problems with journalism in colonial times. It was unfair and it was vicious. It was unfair, simply put, because there was no tradition of fairness. A man who bought a printing press believed that he had a right to print whatever he wanted to. Uh, let me use this analogy. A, 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 a blacksmith, you, you, you take your horse in to have him shod. The blacksmith is not going to say to you, well, I can do it, but if you take, him to, if you take your horse to my competitor, he'll do it more cheaply and more quickly. That's the way a printer would have looked at the notion of fairness advertising the competition instead of a product, an idea. But I'm not going to be fair, he would say. Why should I advertise ideas that are not mine? It's my printing press. So that's why it was unfair. It was vicious, it seems to me, because even though we had such, such, such eminent people, I think, and I know about the Civil War, I would rank it third, I think the two most important events that ever happened in this country were the Revolutionary War and the battle beginning in 1789 to interpret the Constitution, mm -hmm. which is to say to decide what kind of country we were going to have now that we were going to have a country. In other words, there was so much at stake that I believe the founders felt they well, couldn't be civil. In that second battle, you got some very high journalism as well. The Federalist, the Federalist papers, papers belong just there, don't they? They belong just there, and that's probably... I they think were printed were, in a daily newspaper. They were printed in a daily newspaper, then in a pamphlet. I think there were 87 of them, 51 of which Hamilton wrote. There's probably no more erudite example of of uh, journalism than the Federalist Papers. However, that was an exception. Most of what was going on, here's how we switched. During the Revolutionary War, the, the newspapers were vile and unfair against the British. Uh, after the Constitution was passed, newspapers were vile and unfair against f their fellow Americans. I would amend what you just said, uh, and my source is the new book by Eric Burns. They were vile <laughs> and unfair about the British, not only during the Revolution, but before the Revolution. Oh, yeah. And that's how they whipped up the frenzy 
some of the frenzy, which motivated the revolution itself. We've got some commercials that are due at this moment. When we come back, it would be good to look at some of that material. You've got some quotes from, among others, Sam Adams, who wasn't just a man who brewed beer, though these days we know him only for the Samuel Adams right. uh, beer with his portrait on it. But rather, he was, I suppose, the leading journalist engaged in defaming the British and stirring revolutionary fervor. The least ethical journalist in the history of this country. And the cousin of the other Adams, John Adams. John Adams. We return to Eric Burns and shortly to some interesting material drawn from the writings of Samuel Adams. After, we pause for these words. And we return to Eric Burns. You know him certainly as the host of the Fox News Channel's Fox News Watch, which covers the media and covers the media very effectively. Uh, he is a former correspondent for NBC Nightly News, winner of an Emmy Award for media criticism, and a number of previous books, uh, among them uh, about our drinking habits in this country, The Spirits of America, A Social History of Alcohol. Uh, also, Broadcast Blues, dispatches from the 20-year war between a television reporter and his medium. You are that television reporter. And and the war has lasted longer than 20 years now. Now it's gone on for another 12. Yes. We discussed that book about 12 years ago. We did. On this, program. on this program. And the new book is Infamous Scribblers, The Founding Fathers and the Rowdy Beginnings of American Journalism. Let's talk about one of the great rowdies, Sam Adams. Uh, he's more, um, What should I think about him when I lift a beer with his picture on it? Let me put it this way. Let's say you are charged, note Rosenberg, with the responsibility of naming a journalism award. Uh -huh. But somebody says to you, you have to name it after one of two people only, Jason Blair or Sam Adams. Uh -huh. Who do you choose? Well, Blair is a great plagiarist mm -hmm. and faker. Mm -hmm. uh, are you suggesting that Sam Adams outdoes him? I'm suggesting you name the damn award after Jason Blair, and 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 there's no contest. Uh -huh. Blair, um, well, we don't have to talk about Blair. Blair of Bre the New York Times, a recent of, case. of the New York yeah. Times, whose stories had a lot of facts in them, uh -huh. just embellished facts. Adams sometimes did not care about facts at all, Milt, because he, he, uh, and the book explains why it goes back to childhood. But but he had he had an animus against the British that that just would not let up. He wanted independence. It has to do with beer. No, it has to do with a bank, right? It has to do with a land bank. Uh, a bank that yes. his father was one of the main movers in that bank, and the British closed the bank down in preference for some British investors. So British investors could make the money, and people like Sam Adams' father could yeah. not, would not make the money. Um, Sam Adams was, um, um, if, if independence could be won legislatively, he was in favor of it. But he was one of the early uh, proponents of uh, military independence. And here, here's what he would do, Milt. He would write an article for the Boston Gazette, that was his paper, that would say that the uh, Boston, uh, or rather the British troops on patrol in Boston uh, were assaulting uh, American women. And there were no incidents like this. It didn't happen. Made it up out of the whole cloth. Made it up out of whole cloth. Uh, Punched, got into fistfights with American men on the streets, taunted American boys on the streets. None of this happened. Now, that's bad enough, but he went further. He incited violence and, and went further than that even. There was a man named Andrew Oliver who was appointed to collect taxes under the Stamp Act, which, as you know, is one of the most unpopular ideas Parliament ever had. 
Uh, Andrew Oliver was appointed by the Crown to collect taxes, and Sam Adams on one occasion wrote an article about Andrew Oliver, uh, a, a, a vituperative article, and in it he suggested um, that, that maybe uh, those Bostonians who were unhappy with the Stamp Act might want to take matters into their own hands. Okay, bad enough. That night, into the offices of the Boston Gazette, he calls some cronies of his. Uh, they were known to uh, uh, those who wanted independence as the Sons of Liberty. Uh, they were known to the British by far more derogatory terms. So they sit around in the office that night, and Sam Adams plans the violence. He maps it out. He tells them what to do. Two or three days later, and I say two or three days later because papers were not daily back then, Sam Adams writes an article about something that had happened to Andrew Oliver's house. Uh, he himself, Oliver, was hanged in effigy. The head was torn off the effigy. His office was trashed. His house was trashed. And he was threatened with death unless he resigned. And that's the nature of the article, pretty factual article, that Sam Adams wrote. You left out one important fact. Do you want to tell me? Well, obviously, that he was the one who planned the whole operation. He planned the entire operation, and yeah. you would not know it from his journalism. So imagine, I mean, think, Milt, and, 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 and you needn't identify the person, but who's the journalist that you respect least today? Whoever that person is, would he or she do something like that? I have to ask him. You're thinking too long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he or she would. I suppose not. And he, he further, he had a real animus against uh, Thomas Hutchinson, who was the lieutenant governor of the colony. And he did the same thing to Hutchinson. And, and the result of that was that uh, uh, Hutchinson's house was destroyed as well. And um, Hutchinson loved Massachusetts, he, even though he was a, a loyal subject of the crown. He happened to be writing uh, a history of the colony. He had written five or six hundred pages. He hadn't Xeroxed them yet for obvious reasons. He was a little early for Xeroxing, just had the one copy, and it was torn up, it was thrown into the mud. Uh, he, he was, excuse me, he was so uh, disheartened that he never resumed the project again, and he was quoted in, uh, in the paper as saying, uh, in the Boston Gazette, by Sam Adams, without comment, as, uh, you know, expressing his chagrin, saying he would pray for the people who did this, but also noting that those who did this, as they left, even cut mm -hmm. down the trees outside his house. That's the kind of story Sam mm -hmm. Adams wrote objectively. What was his, it served his ends. So what well. was his connection to his cousin John? Well, when, when Sam died, uh, John was very laudatory toward him. Uh, John did some writing for the Boston Gazette, too. But uh, John could be a little... <laughs> He could be a little incomprehensible. John was a very erudite man. Uh, his, his prose was uh, much harder to understand, much more circumlocuitous than Sam's. And in fact, um, there's an interesting story about their relationship because after a, a, a horrible incident blown out of proportion by Sam Adams called the Boston Massacre, in which some uh, British troops, in fact, shot and murdered uh, we think unarmed Americans, at least they shot first. You say blown out of proportion. How could you blow that out of proportion? Because it wasn't clear to what extent there was provocation. It wasn't clear what threats might have been made by the mob. It wasn't clear who gave the initial order to fire. Okay. Uh, John Adams, um, probably Milt, because in part he didn't trust Sam's rendering of it. And Sam gave the uh, incident its name, by the way, the Boston Massacre. John was the lawyer for the British soldiers 
who were tried in yep. that case, and, he, and in fact, he got all eight of them off. Two of them were tortured, which is to say they were burned slightly on the hand, and the other six had no penalty whatsoever. So at least in that case, uh, John and Sam disagreed. Yeah. David McCullough makes a good deal of that in his biography of, of John, John Adams. Adams yes, because it was a very courageous thing for John Adams sure. to do. He had death threats against him. Uh, Sam didn't make them, but a lot of other people did. I always love to play the game of counterfactuals. Uh, one of the best ways to do that is to kill off some significant historical actor early in life. Uh, the smallpox knocks him over at the age of 18, Sam Adams. So mm -hmm. we take him out of the history. Would the revolution have occurred on more or less the same schedule? Uh, would it have occurred? Yes. Would it have occurred on the same schedule? My guess is no. Because not only was Sam Adams uh, <clears throat> the prime mover in Boston, he was also milled a prime inspiration for newspapers and other colonies. There was a paper called the Pennsylvania Journal, as opposed to Ben Franklin's paper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. But the Journal, after the Intolerable Acts, which was a set of taxes mm -hmm. passed by Parliament stupidly after we reacted as adversely as we did to the Stamp Act, uh, after the Intolerable Acts, the Pennsylvania Journal pretended that it had a source in Parliament. And it wrote an article saying, you think the Intolerable Acts are bad? They were just a set of new taxes. Here's what's happening next. Um, if you have a baby, you're a married couple, you have a baby, it's a male child, there's going to be a fine. Um, a, uh, yeah, a fine of, uh, of 15 pounds. If you have a, a female child, it will be 10 pounds. If you have a child out of wedlock, it'll be 50 pounds. You will not be allowed to live in North America for more than seven years consecutively. You will now be taxed on wheat, flour, a whole variety of other things. This is what Parliament is going to do next. All just a pure lie? Every one of those was a lie. The yeah. Pennsylvania Journal had it. It had no access to Parliament. So Adams not only did this kind of thing himself, Milt, but his example inspired other papers. Would the war have begun anyhow? Yes, we had legitimate grievances. Would it have begun when it did? Uh, the answer is most likely no. I'm suddenly remembering uh, an, uh, a famous story in American journalism. I can't get it exactly right in my memory. You will know its full detail. William don't, Randolph. Don't pressure me like that. No. William Randolph first sends somebody down to Cuba uh, to give him stories about uh, the revolt of the Cubans against the Spanish, and that reporter cables back, I can't find any revolt. Uh, how does that story finish? Uh, Richard Harding Davis was the That's reporter, was. and he yeah. was the. Uh, God, what would he, the lady foreign correspondent. He was the Bob Woodward of the day. Exactly. I mean, he was the most famous yeah. reporter there was, and he cabled back. Uh, where I, I'm going to paraphrase here words to this effect. Uh, uh, no, no war. Uh, can't send you anything. And Hearst wrote back. Uh, you, what was it? You supply. Uh, you supply pictures. We'll supply war. We'll supply. I'll make the war. Yeah. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And similarly, Sam Adams and some of his colleagues in other cities did the same. You've got a, um, a selection, of, I'm sure, of Sam Adams uh, already earmarked. Let's hear him. Let's hear him in his full fulmination. Actually, you know what? I'm not sure if I can find him, uh, I, because I, I have already referred to you uh, some of the things that he said uh, with regard to the... Um, um, the massacre. With regard to the massacre, with regard to the Stamp Act. Let me give you a slightly more benign example. This was Sam Adams at his best, which was pretty bad, uh -huh. too. He reported once uh, for the Boston Gazette on a demonstration against the Stamp Act. Um, it, was a, uh, it was a crowd that was noted by everyone else who was there, other newspapers and some, some government authorities, as uh, 200. Uh, in the Boston Gazette, Sam Adams wrote, 
an indignant band of thousands. Now, this indignant band of thousands was chanting a slogan. The slogan was liberty, property, and no stamps. Liberty, property, and no stamps. They kept chanting this, and Adams uh, uh, reported that improvisationally they had come up with this. Well, the problem was that two or three days later, that very slogan was written by Sam Adams mm -hmm. in the Boston Gazette. He did, in short, every single thing he could, unrestrained by veracity, unrestrained by decency, to get us to war. And, of course, in his uh, estimates of crowd size, he must have magnified by a factor of 20. At least, according to every other person who was there. And we still do that. Yes. Well, yeah, in, in that case, Sam's influence is still felt, of course, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's hear about some of these other scoundrels, these interesting scoundrels, after we return from these words. And we return to Eric Burns, drawing from his new book, Infamous Scribblers. Another of those infamous colonial and post-colonial scribblers was the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, of the Aurora, of which he was the editor in Philadelphia. But his grandfather set a different tone, didn't he? His grandfather is probably, uh, if, if infamous scribblers has a, a hero, and it has a couple, uh, certainly none more than Franklin. As a journalist himself, uh, uh, Milt, uh, witty, erudite, uh, so well-respected that he could criticize without inflaming. Uh, he reported on the Stamp Act and various matters like this. So actually, he wasn't a journalist then, but in, in, in diplomatic discussions, he would mention the Stamp Act, and he would urge restraint. Even when he wasn't a journalist, he helped to journalism as a deputy postmaster of the colonies. He instituted a lot of postal reforms that helped newspapers get places more quickly. So we might call him the anti-Sam Adams, except for the one time when he himself printed a lie in a newspaper. But as you'll see, it was done for uh, an entirely different purpose. Franklin, Franklin had a child out of wedlock, <clears throat> a son, and he acknowledged that son. Strangely enough, history doesn't know who the woman was, and I say strangely because certainly she was fined, she was vilified, she was ostracized, that's the way it worked then. And, and Franklin, even though he was the beneficiary of this hypocrisy, was very upset by it. He, he thought this is just, you know, the man and the woman were in this thing together. Um, he, he also thought the Pennsylvania judiciary was hypocritical in a lot of other matters. So he wrote, Milt, the story of Polly Baker, who came to trial before a panel of several judges in Pennsylvania. And I will give you now, uh, courtesy of Ben Franklin, a few excerpts from her testimony. She's defending herself on the basis of having had five children out of wedlock mm -hmm. through five different men. You know, you figure they could have put her on trial after the third or fourth, but okay, they waited till the fifth, and she's testifying, and she says, Can it be a crime in the nature of things, I mean, to add the number of king's subjects in a new country that really needs people? She thought she was doing a public service. She went on to say, The duty of the first and great command of nature and of nature's God is increase and multiply. She had done just that. And she concluded before the judges by saying, I have hazarded the loss of public esteem and frequently incurred public disgrace and punishment, and therefore ought, in my humble opinion, instead of a whipping, to have a statue erected in my memory. Well, the judges were so taken by her testimony that they acquitted her. One of the judges married her, and we can presume added even further to the number of king's subjects in this sparsely populated country.
it was 30 years, 30 years before Franklin admitted that the whole thing was a hoax. Now, compare that to what he put it forward as a news story. Well, he put it forward as a, as a news story, but we do know that at the time it was published abroad initially. We do know that at the time uh, when people uh, uh, said things to him about it along the lines of, "Gee, does you know does Polly have a sister or something like that?" Um, he would he was surprised that people believed it because he thought, and this is my own interpretation, but he thought of it as a parable, much as a biblical parable. It wasn't meant to be literal truth. It was made to make a point. So he wasn't, if it was a lie, and, 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 and literally speaking, it was a lie, it was not a lie in the sense that what Sam Adams told was a lie. It's a different thing. Um, that's really an author's privilege in a way to, uh, to construct it as if. Not necessarily a journalist's privilege, but remember, back in those days, journalism was a very different thing. And Franklin Milt, another thing he did for journalism is he, he expanded it so much that, that you could almost expect there to be a little mm. bit of fiction. You know, he was such a curious man, so interested and so accomplished in so many things. All of those things went into the paper. His experiments about electricity, mm -hmm. science, philosophy, he made journalism a much broader field than any other journalist of the time did. Well, he was a universal man, and indeed, one would have to say, a person of genius, which puts them sort of off the range of the normal distribution of human types. Yeah, so if you want to tell a hoax and you're a genius, you can tell a you're hoax. You're allowed. Yeah. You are allowed. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are two other very active figures in the use of journalism to defame opponents who are themselves... Uh, very important American public figures. Alexander Hamilton is the one I think you refer yes. to, and Thomas Jefferson the other. A little known fact about them, <clears throat> Milt, is that they were competing press barons uh, for a time. We don't think That's why them. I mentioned them in those terms. They, uh, in fact, are setting up uh, newspaper assaults upon one another, though keeping their own uh, initiative uh, veiled. Well, yeah, and, and, and this gets us to the, to the post-war period. In the pre-war period, you know, as I said, Americans were attacking the British. In the post-war period, they were attacking the others. And here it is in most simple terms. Uh, how do we interpret the Constitution? Well, the Federalists, and Hamilton was their leading figure, wanted a strong central government. As I say, simple terms. Uh, the Republicans, under Jefferson, wanted a weak central government and states' rights. I have must quickly rush in a question that young people would want to ask because they're confused. I thought, a young a listener might say, that Jefferson was the founder of the Democratic Party. Why do you call him a Republican? Because that's what he was called back then. And, and the terms changed around uh, the meaning of the terms, the connotation, I should say, of the terms changed around... Uh, Actually, not until after Lincoln's time. But that's what he was called. That's what Jefferson was at the time. He was a Republican. He, he wanted the whole country to be a bunch of Virginias because he thought Virginia ran so well. So, okay, these are the two men who stand for the two diametrically opposed theories of government, uh, which led to such incendiary uh, reporting. So, Hamilton... <clears throat> is the Secretary of Treasury for Washington. Now, that made sense because uh, Washington was a Federalist, too. Hamilton and Washington agreed on virtually everything. Hamilton was Washington's primary aide in the Revolutionary War. But Jefferson, as I just indicated, uh, Milt, was, was a foe of these two men, a strong foe. And yet Washington, in his, what should we say, magnanimity, naivete, appointed him Secretary of State. So Hamilton gets 
Treasury Department money, and he funds a newspaper, the Gazette of the United States. And it's, it, it defends Washington, and it savages all of Jefferson's agrarian ideas. Who's doing the writing? Uh, Hamilton is doing a fair amount of it, and he is passing judgment on that which he cannot do. Hamilton was probably Milt the most prolific. Of but he's not all. doing it in his own name, is he? No. Uh, the reason he didn't do do you want me to get to all right let's let's do that now briefly nobody wrote under his own name back then not because they were ashamed but because they loved the sound of of um of um, noms de plume. Usually they were chosen for classical uh, yeah. uh, he was He was Publius. He, he was Publius. And so that suggested, uh, or as did some other names, you know, uh, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, mm -hmm. which was a real strong influence to, uh, to the colonial Americans. Also, uh, if you wrote under, the, under six or seven pseudonyms, it seemed as if there were six or seven people as opposed to just one guy who was very prolific. So that's right. He wrote all these articles. People knew. People knew who was doing what, the writing, but, but the what names... What was the nature of the attack on Jefferson? Uh, is it not the case that Hamilton actually pushes forward the accusation that Jefferson fathered illegitimate children with one of his slaves? No. That happened later, and that was someone else who did that, and Hamilton was not involved in that. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, Hamilton, as, as, I, I'm, I, as I'm sure we'll get to, was before Jefferson the victim of a celebrity sex scandal. But we have here Hamilton funding this newspaper, and okay, I'm thinking in terms of, well, this, you know, George Bush, Armstrong Williams, okay, at, at, at least the government money is going to promote the government position. That's mm -hmm. sort of a defense. But Jefferson was taking State Department money and using it to fund a newspaper which was savaging the administration of which Jefferson was one of the primary members. Uh, it was a paper called the National Gazette. And here, Milt, this is astonishing to me. Uh, I, I went through this whole, the writing of this whole book and never lost certain degrees of astonishment. How did Jefferson do it? In a variety of ways. Here's one of them. He left the door of the State Department unlocked at night, often, and he left documents on the desk documents which were drafts, not necessarily, you know, final copies of legislation, or, or, or documents which, if taken out of context, would have made the Washington administration look bad. He left these documents out, left the door unlocked. Philip Freneau, the leading poet of the era, who was the editor of Jefferson's paper, would come in at night. He would get these documents. He would do a report. A couple days later, Washington would re read the report in the paper and not only be astonished by more negative press, but be astonished by the fact that this information had gotten out. Jefferson had a very devious side to him. Jefferson once asked Washington, uh, I'm sorry, Washington once asked Jefferson about mm -hmm. this. He said, how is Freneau getting this stuff? You, you know, this paper is sympathetic to your point of view. You must know Freneau. Is there anything you can do about this? Is there anything you can tell me? And bold-faced, he lied to him. Jefferson lied to Washington. He said, I know Freneau only barely. Well, he knew enough. He knew him well enough to fund his newspaper. I don't have much control over the paper. Sure he did. He was William Randolph Hearst to that paper. I'll try to do what I can. He didn't do what he could. So, you know, it, 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 it's intriguing. When you know these men, and Jefferson's a good example, read a biography of Jefferson, and it's like looking at him from head to toe. But to study some of these men, like Sam Adams, like Jefferson, through the prism of journalism, it's like having one body part exposed under a microscope.
So you see, you get a clearer picture of a smaller element of the person. There's another lasting rivalry among top guys. In fact, both of them presidents at different times of the United States, Jefferson again, and uh, the other Adams, John Adams. Mm -hmm. Um, They were both uh, founding fathers, clearly, uh, but they served as president uh, in uh, virtually adjoining terms, or were they actually adjoining? They were. They were. Uh, Adams is second president, and Jefferson is third. Uh, yes, Adams the the uh, third term because of Washington's two. Yeah. Jefferson yeah. the fourth term. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and they remained uh, very critical of one another and very opposed on policy and on principle until we are told virtually the, the end of their lives, the day July fourth, eighteen whatever. Twenty six. When they both die. Mm-hmm. Um, did they use the press against one another also? Um, not too much because they didn't have to their 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 minions were willing to do it um, by this time by the time Adams ran against Jefferson Jefferson no longer had his paper uh, Adams never had a paper Adams was just too erudite to write for the press but it's astonishing Milt. some historians believe the dirtiest campaign we've ever had was the presidential campaign of 1800 I think it would be hard to pick the the, the dirtiest but I'll give you one example of the uh, <clears throat> the uh, pro-Adams press, what it did with Jefferson, uh, a report somehow made the rounds that Jefferson was dead. And uh, it turns out he wasn't dead. He was just at Monticello, which is a different thing from being dead entirely. And um, somebody wrote a letter to a paper in Connecticut, which is cited in the book, and I don't remember where exactly. But he said, in effect, this writer, and they published the letter on the front page, um, uh, it's, it's too bad Jefferson's alive, but let's not uh, you know, let, let's not be too upset about this. Somebody probably started a rumor just to make us all feel good. And so whoever started this rumor that Jefferson was dead had our best interests in mind. And so it's okay. It's too bad that he's not dead, but pretending he was dead was something that we all wanted anyhow. <laughs> That's, here's the point worth making. That wasn't an editorial. They didn't have editorials back then. All of this stuff was news. Well, but that leads to a, a related point. It is taken as uh, absolute holy writ virtually in journalism schools, and really when it comes to speeches given by editors, that in any newspaper worthy of that designation, there are there is news content and editorial content. All the opinion has to be reserved, it is properly reserved, for the editorial page, the direct editorial's for the newspaper and the op-ed pieces and the columnar pieces that appear uh, probably on the adjoining page. Is that true? Uh, you know that some of the leading American newspapers are accused these days. These days, uh, what certainly would have been an evident and obviously correct accusation in those days yeah. of uh, editorializing the news. The Times is often accused of that. Right. And in its general ferocity uh, towards and against the current administration, that's often quite evident just in what they choose to put on the front page. Sure, uh, you, you can editorialize in a lot of ways, not just by what you say, but the kinds of stories you put forward. What you choose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in those days, there was no uh, news versus editorial distinction, was there? There was none made. No one saw a reason to make it. And in fact, it's a fairly recent development, and, and one cannot even say when it happened because it happened so gradually. The network that you work for, that is uh, Fox News uh, cable television, 
Uh, what is that slogan of theirs that the left makes a lot of fun of? Um, well, there are two slogans, fair and balanced. Fair and balanced. And the other one is, we report, you decide. Yeah. Well, is it true? Which? Either. <laughs> My chair just got a lot warmer. <laughs> Roger Ailes is not listening tonight. Roger Ailes might be listening, and then, and, 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 and that's not the issue. Um, what, what Fox News does, in, and I don't like to be put into the position of, of uh, defending or, or criticizing, uh, criticizing either my company or, or other companies, but what, what, what Roger Ailes wanted to do, I think, and what Rupert Murdoch wanted to do, was give more voice to conservative opinion without at the same time <clears throat> dismissing liberal opinion. And, and what they both realized was that if you had 24 hours a day, you could have an awful lot of opinion. Uh, I, I wish I could give you the, uh, the, the source of this information, Milton, and I can't, but somebody studied, counted, actually, the number of professed liberals and professed conservatives at the three uh, all-news cable networks, and uh, there were more liberals, more people uh, uh, publicly identifying themselves mm -hmm. as liberals at Fox. Uh, and, and this may be one of the reasons that Fox gets criticized, because having a lot of liberals and a lot of conservatives leads to a lot of contention. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a greater problem than political bias in the media today. It's contentiousness and incivility, which, as we've been discussing for the last almost hour, has its roots its deeper roots in colonial times. We need to get an evaluation from you, and I'm really setting this up for our next phase because we're going to commercials in about a minute. But I'd love to have an evaluation from you, the um, the moderator of the Fox News Watch, which really evaluates American press performance mm -hmm. uh, and does that wonderfully well. Uh, Thank you. In this town, we see you on Sunday, I believe. Um, you could Saturday night at. Run, well, I see it on Sunday. It runs a few times. It's the primary time. time. Yeah. Wonderful discussions uh, with uh, Cal Thomas, uh, an old friend of ours. He used to be uh, a film uh, scholar. No, Neil Gabler. Neil Gabler. And uh, who's, who are the others? Jim Pinkerton. Jim Pinkerton, who I discovered from you, you told me this before the program, is six feet nine inches tall. It's yes. good to keep him seated through the program. That's why we keep him seated, yes. And, and Jane Hall, who is a uh, professor of journalism. Professor of journalism, a longtime writer for People, yeah. the L.A. Times. They're, they're, they're excellent discussions. Um, but we need to come to their evaluation, and particularly the evaluation of Eric Burns, as to whether qualities that were evident in early American journalism, colonial and revolutionary and post-revolutionary, qualities of excess, of uh, dissimulation, mm. of, uh, uh, of uh, defamation, whether those qualities persist in present American press performance, whether print press or electronic press. And we will uh, go to that and related questions about the way we tell the news now after we pause for these words. And once again, our guest tonight is Eric Burns, host of the Fox News channel, Fox News Watch, which covers the media and covers it very effectively um, and very amusingly uh, very often as well. Um, of the new book, Infamous Scribblers, Walter Isaacson, who's done a major biography of Benjamin Franklin. And a wonderful biography. It, we, we, he discussed mm -hmm. it with us on the program here. Walter ran Time magazine. For some years now, he's been the head of, um, what is it, that place out in, um, in Colorado? 
the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute. Yes, with with a stretch running CNN in between. That, that quite quite so. Yeah. At any rate, he says about uh, the new book by by Eric. What a revelation! The raucous joy of our founding journalists is part of our nation's DNA, and what a good thing that is. Eric Burns' infamous scribblers captures the passion of Benjamin Franklin, his overlooked brother James, and other great characters ranging from Sam Adams to Thomas Paine. To understand the press today, you need to understand the press that gave birth to our country. An excellent and quite appropriate quotation. Also, it gives me the text for where I want to go now. What do we learn about the press? How can we more deeply or fully understand the press today by reference to these founding pressmen? Well, one of the statements that can be made, I mean, my, 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 uh, the fundamental point is that, uh, and, 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 and the zealots on the right and left who hate the press don't believe it, but uh, the first point to make is that we are much, much better today. We are more civil. We are more, more fair. As I said, if you're a, if you're a, a zealot on the, on the right or the left, you don't believe that. Um, or if but, you read the Daily Inquirer or the Daily Star, you don't quite believe that either. You don't quite believe it, except those papers are more comic books than they well, are mean-spirited, yeah. you know, tomes about, about political events. Well, they're scandal sheets is what they are. But I, I, I think, Milt, that we're seeing, and, and I, I don't want to overstate this case, but to a slight extent, we are seeing uh, a return to some of the contentiousness that marred colonial journalism. You know, we, we went from the contentiousness of colonial journalism to a long period of uh, what I would call neutrality in journalism. You could hardly characterize it. And then when the, the Bennetts and the Hearsts and the Pulitzers came along, uh, it was tabloid journalism. It wasn't uh, political bias or anything like that. It was, you know, man kills wife and three kids. What, what all news cable, uh, for which I work, is is doing now with its opinion shows some of its opinion shows is bringing back in my view an unsavory degree of contentiousness unsavory an unsavory degree of contentiousness to me it's 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 illuminating to have a uh, if you're discussing a political issue an erudite person on the right talk to an erudite person on the left but that doesn't play on television that is not considered mm. to be good television so what you want is a screamer on the right going after a screamer on the left, or the host yeah. interceding and doing the screaming himself. Give me a moment in a way to advertise our own program. Uh, Monday night, uh, this coming Monday, uh, we, we have a change in schedule. Kevin Phillips, a former extreme conservative and yep. one of the planners of the Southern strategy for the Republicans, uh, went left quite some while ago, and he's, he's been screaming with increasing velocity from the left in recent books. He's got a new book which does just that. And sounds fascinating. Let me give him a plug. I've been reading about it in, in various places. But he will be here together with <clears throat> Joe Morris, uh, who is a local lawyer, a former Reagan administration official, a very brilliant conservative, and a major figure in the Illinois Republican Party. And they will discuss the thesis and the reading of history developed in Phillips's book. Will, will, will you keep them civil? They are civil. They Good. will be civil. Okay. Uh, this is a civil, I hope, program. We don't let people shout at one another. Okay. And they don't, not the guests. Sometimes callers get out of hand, but we watch callers rather carefully, too. And they can uh, be clicked off. As we screen them. Well, we yeah. don't click them off, but we might need to ease them off at times. <laughs> but civility would, uh, is a virtue, or at least is a quality to be, uh, to be enjoyed and to be commended where it occurs. Uh, do you find a lack of civility in advocacy programming? 
in radio and television today. Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, it's. I don't mind, as so many critics of journalism do, that there is so much opinion on the air today. Uh, it, it troubles me that people think, let's say, that Rush Limbaugh is a source of news, uh, somewhat in the sense that it troubles me that people think John Stewart is a source of news. Limbaugh is a propagandist. Stewart is an entertainer. Limbaugh is, has, a, has a comic sense. And he, he, he does express a serious opinion, but with a comic kind of uh, uh, rendering, as does uh, Al Franken. Franken, but the, they they which are, is which which is on the left on, side on the left side. But they should not be taken as as news sources, just as the people who identify themselves uh, as as opinion givers, uh, you know, uh, Joe Scarborough, uh, Sean Hannity, Alan Combs. I mean, Hannity and Combs, who are on the network that I work for, were chosen because of their political views. The opposition between their views. Yeah, because, yeah. And, and and to me that's fine. Critics say there's too much opinion. Again, I go back to a point I made earlier: the 24 hours a day, these 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 stations do news all day. It's a giant more that needs to be filled. Yes, and they most of them, all three of them, in fact, do straight news during the day. These what opinion I, shows come on at night. What I'm bugged by is not so much those opinion shows, but on your network and on all the other cable networks, uh, the news is trivialized with too much kidding around. It's done in too short a frame so that a really important story might get a minute and a half uh, after comments about the coiffure of the uh, the lady anchor and the tie of the male anchor and it's just not enough uh, we need uh, now occasionally cnn does a program on foreign news in which two other anchors take over mm -hmm. both of them have attractive accents and they do more extended treatment of news from around the world a cbc from up north a canadian broadcast a company uh, did a wonderful program of that sort, which was on cable. It's still shown in Canada, I guess. At least in Chicago, it was bumped off to carry the rather silly uh, channel organized by Al Gore. Silly because he has posturing kids doing odd angles on the news, uh, much of the much of it invented by them themselves. That is, people do their own video and and phone it in or send yeah, it in, which so is to say, blog-like. It, well, it is a blog. Yeah. Uh, of uh, it is a TV blog in essence, and most of it is unwatchable as far as I'm concerned. What is happening, what, what you are alluding to, is the fact that uh, uh, journalism is becoming so democratized, uh, and I say that in the worst sense, that anybody virtually can consider himself or herself a journalist by blogging. And mm -hmm. and and w where does the fact checking come in? Where 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 does the, you know, where does the <laughs> tradition come in? Well, what consensus, if there is a consensus, has emerged on your program on the Fox News Watch between you and your four regular guests concerning the role of blogs in news telling these days? Uh, that they are not, on the whole, there's so many it's hard to generalize, Milt, but uh, two points. They are not on the whole to be trusted, but they're performing a valuable function because what they do is, especially if several blogs repeat the same kind of charge, they force the mainstream news organizations to do more checking than they would have. Can you, can you go over, if only briefly, uh, what they did with regard to Dan Rather's coverage of the Alabama National Guard uh, right. performance by the president when he was a young man? That's actually just what I was uh, going to mention. The first uh, time that we on Fox News Watch really gave credit to bloggers 
was with Memogate because it was, in fact, bloggers several days before any mainstream journalist came along who said, uh, you know, these, these, these documents might... Now, it's, these are documents that Rather was using to demonstrate what exactly? Bush's uh, ineptitude, well, not ineptitude, but the fact that Bush didn't serve as much as he was required to serve. In the Alabama National Guard. In the Guard. Alabama National Guard. And in fact, the overall case has never been proven. Maybe he didn't. But the point is that these documents that, uh, that that made certain specific allegations were proven to be false, and it they was, were they were in fact forged. They were forged, and it was the it was it was bloggers that 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 first got this information, and nobody paid much attention when the bloggers put it online. But the mainstream journalists at the, at the major newspapers and the major networks reading the blogs decided maybe this is something we better look into. So the blogs served in this case as a conscience. Yeah. Um, we will be going shortly to the phones. Uh, the number, as ever, 591-7200. Anything you want to ask about early American journalism, anything you want to ask or assert about contemporary American journalism, we're glad to hear from you. Any journalists who want to join in the conversation are surely welcome. 591-7200. If uh, 312, the area code, if you're calling long distance, if you're at a great long distance uh, listening on the Internet, uh, on either coast or up in Canada or down in Mexico or in Guatemala or on the Pacific Rim and you want to join us, an easier way would be, of course, uh, through email, the email address extension720 at tribune.com. Extension720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. And we look forward to your contributions. Get your calls and email in now. We'll be with you shortly. Turning to the, that actual program that you do, Fox News Watch. What have you learned about American press performance by doing that program? What a good question that is. And, and you know what people mean when they say what a good question that is. They mean, I don't have an answer yeah. at the ready because I haven't thought of it before. Let me improvise. I'm, well, I, I'm not sure that I have learned so much as that I have had opinions uh, reinforced. Uh, what troubles me most about journalism, what troubled me most about journalism today going into the program is what troubles me most about it now, uh, <clears throat> that we are, uh, the, the, that we, that we cover the wrong stories too often, uh, that we are too often looking for the simple story, uh, as opposed to the story of more importance, which we don't cover because its nuances are somewhat complex, and maybe we don't have pictures for them. So it's much easier to cover uh, Natalie Holloway's disappearance, let's say, than it is to cover some tax bill. You know what a, a great example of this was, Milt, from a few years ago, when <clears throat> one of the most important battles in our lifetime over uh, health insurance uh, was was going on in this country uh, when uh, Bill Clinton was president. The, 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 it, it wasn't considered a battle <laughs> over health insurance. It was Hillary versus Newt. Remember that? Mm -hmm. they, they were the two leading proponents for their points of view. Well, Hillary Clinton had her plan, and the media played it as a personality conflict because of the complexity of the issues. Well, isn't personalizing a very common device and really a common failing of... Uh, American journalism. Well, you know, when I was a journalist at NBC, we were taught to do that to some extent. Uh, uh, I worked out of the Chicago bureau here, and <clears throat> when we uh, we got uh, government figures about uh, farm subsidies, let's say, uh, 
well, the thinking was, you know, you can't do a whole report just about statistics. So do half the report on what the government says farmers are making and then go find a single farmer who will illustrate that. And we mm-hmm. would make a joke because there would always be a line in the story to this effect. And for farmers like Joe Smith, that means mm-hmm. and, and that's that's a reputable thing to do. But when we take when but when we take the whole issue and, and wrap it around a single person and make it a boxing match as opposed to a debate, then we do a great disservice to people. Many years ago, William James, as psychologist rather than as philosopher, described the world to a newborn infant as, quote, a blooming, buzzing confusion. As adults, we don't really fully acknowledge that, at least not to others, that in fact, as we examine the world around us, it is a kind of blooming, buzzing confusion. We don't admit that there's a great deal we don't understand, and we don't admit how much we don't know. And if we are at all responsible, we try to get some information, we try to get some understanding about what's happening out there in that blooming, buzzing confusion to um, reduce at least the confusion. How do you do it for yourself? Where do you go to get first information and then interpretation that sets you thinking rationally? Well, I've reached the stage at which um, I trust myself for interpretation, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there has to be something to interpret. Um, What I do is 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 read probably some of the same sources that most people do. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post. I try to read the Mm -hmm. Washington Times when I can. Uh, There are certain uh, mainstream uh, uh, websites that I that I look at. Which Uh, ones are those? I. uh, primarily, what's it's the uh, what's it called? It's the the uh, the think tank. It's in Sarasota, Florida. It's the Pointer Organization, sure. and, and they do do, yeah. do their uh, website. A fellow named Jim Romanesco does a column yeah. about the media. But what I like to try to do is get several different versions of the story from several different sources, broadcast and print. And then there are these sites like uh, uh, the, the Pointer site. There's a site called Media Bistro. And, and I like to see how the people whose job it is to report on the media report. And at some point, Milt, I think it behooves me to stop and say, okay, I know enough. If, if, if I'm getting paid to do this and if I've done this long enough, I have as much information as I need. My job to process it. Do you go to the opinion journals? Do you go to National Review and uh, New Republic? and weekly standard and so on and so on sometimes but there's a certain predictability there you know the uh the one of the problems journalism has today is that both the left and right and especially the right have gotten great at uh, forming watchdog groups Mm -hmm. and there are charges made by liberals that the right is so good at it that they're intimidating uh various news organizations The, the best of these is the media research center um and I, I uh, they just can find liberal bias in places where you don't even hear news. Do you go to so, quasi-scholarly sources? Uh, for example, you go to the Council on Foreign Relations and their journal, uh, Foreign Affairs. I, I do sometimes, but I do it for personal reasons, because on Fox News Watch, uh, since we're dealing with a, a, a mass audience, we're generally not getting into that kind of nuance. But yeah, for my own uh, for my own edification, I will on occasion. Yes, I find those of greatest value. Uh, journals like that one, Foreign Affairs, uh, and the other one, Foreign Policy, and for that matter, uh, magazines like Commentary, like uh, 
uh, Prospect, that's a British magazine. I know Prospect. And so on. Uh, you just find interesting material uh, and thoughtful journalism. I think it's the higher journalism. Yeah, I would agree with that the, term. The although... Economist would be a very good case in point also. Although the there are, are people who would you know, d dismiss you right now out of hand as, as a an, snob, as an elitist for yeah. using a term like the higher journalism. Um, I, I think the charge of Fox News Watch, however, <clears throat> is not to deal with higher journalism simply because of numbers, because so few people read The Economist. I mean, if we mm -hmm. do a segment on an article on The Economist as opposed to a segment on something that appeared on the CBS Evening News, we lose a lot of viewers. We just had an ad earlier on this program. You, you and I were listening to part of it right. by The Economist because their lead story in this week's major edition is a story about Chicago. Congratulations. Yeah, well, their cities made it. According to The Economist, I think, in fact, they get some of it wrong. They're certainly taken in by Mayor Daley more than uh, a good journalist ought to be. My opinion, not necessarily yours, or not necessarily the view of this station. 591-7200 is our number. We're going to pause right now briefly for some messages. And then on to the phones and to the email. The phone bank is open and available to you. Any question you've got, whether about the founding fathers and the journalists who uh, annoyed them and drove them uh, to distraction, to say the least, even George Washington, uh, or about contemporary uh, journalism in this country, what's right and what's wrong about it, uh, your questions and comments on those matters to Eric Burns, the host of the Fox News Channel's Fox News Watch and the author of the new book, Infamous Scribblers. 591-7200. Get those calls in now if you'd rather email us, extension 720 at tribune.com. And we return to Eric Burns, author of this excellent new book, Infamous Scribblers, and to your calls to him. Uh, we are looking certainly for your questions, whatever they may be, in response to what we've been talking about, but also your opinions about contemporary journalism. Uh, what do you find fulfilling? What do you find enervating? What do you find infuriating? 591-7200 is the number. There's room available on the, um, on the board. If you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try, and you will quite likely get through, depending upon how quickly you try. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Yeah, hello? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I'm calling from uh, the West Morgan Park neighborhood. I was out running errands, and I heard you guys on the radio and uh, tuned in when I got home. Mm -hmm. I've read a couple of books on the um, history of the birth of our nation in recent years, including David McCullough's biography on John Adams, uh, and then the companion book on uh, 1776 this past summer. But uh, my question is uh, for your guest, Mr. Burns, that um, when I read uh, John Adams' biography, you know, I, I should probably preface this by telling you that I'm kind of a uh, novice at uh, history, but it is a subject that has uh, has my attention. I'm very much interested in it, but I don't know all that much about it, I guess I could say. But having read John Adams' book about John, or the John Adams' biography, I came away with a... Um, very strong appreciation for that man being where he was at that critical juncture of our, the, of our nation, that we as Americans today, this is how I feel, that we as Americans today owe John Adams a debt of gratitude for keeping us on a track that allowed us to uh, get ahead of steam and, and really become the nation that we eventually became. I was just wondering if that's a, 
uh, relevant uh, sentiment having read that book. And I know McCullough may be uh, biased in, the, in, in how he's presented uh, John Adams. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, I, I, I know David McCullough a little, and many years ago I ran into him, and I asked him what book he was writing next, uh, meaning after his uh, biography of Harry Truman. Mm -hmm. And he said he was going to write a dual biography of Jefferson and Adams, uh, largely based on the, their extraordinary relationship. They were great friends for a while. Right. They were enemies for a while. And then for the last 12 years of their lives, when they didn't see each other because they were old men, uh, they wrote some amazing letters to each other. Right, right. And I then, remember reading about that. Uh, a, a few years later, this book, uh, this biography of John Adams comes out, and I ran into McCullough, and I said to him, what happened? This was supposed to be a different book. And he said, I just didn't like Jefferson enough. I was very surprised. I thought Adams was underappreciated, and I thought Jefferson was overappreciated. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were listening earlier, uh, I gave you some reasons. Uh, strictly looking at uh, Jefferson through the world of journalism mm -hmm. um, for that might suggest some reasons that uh, McCullough would be upset with him. Uh, John Adams, uh, I, again, looking at him in, 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 in the world of, of journalism, never wrote uh, the kind of incendiary personal prose that some of the others of the time did. Uh, when he was attacked by uh, others, he did something very nefarious, however, which is <clears throat> allowed... Um, probably mailed one of the worst pieces of uh, legislation in this country's history to be passed, and that was the Sedition Act. I don't know if our caller is familiar with the Sedition yes, Act. Yes, I am. Uh, but that was under Adams' presidency, and he was torn by it. He really was. He knew it was wrong. He knew it wasn't what democracy was supposed to be. But he was so upset by the criticism that he received in the press that he thought, well, I, as long as I've got this tool, I might as well use it. And this is the extraordinary thing that men of all stripe uh, uh, who have served in high uh, positions, especially presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, this is something they've all found out. It is, it is one thing to advocate freedom of the press. It is another thing to support it when you are the victim of the freedom of the press, as you often are when you hold very high When office. I think about presidents, more or less, of the modern era, the only one, it seems to me, who didn't develop a paranoia about the press uh, was Franklin Roosevelt. Maybe I'm wrong about him as well. Kennedy got very angry and for a while announced that they would cancel their subscription to uh, the Washington Post. Nixon said they would cancel their White House subscription to the New York Times. Uh, there are always complaints about the press. I quoted Lyndon Johnson earlier, uh, making a similar point. One of the first things George Washington did, Milt, when he retired, was cancel the subscriptions yes. to all of his papers. <laughs> he had ten of them. Ten yeah. subscriptions. But he canceled them all. But then he renewed them. Well, yeah. he renewed them because although he liked the idea of not running the government anymore, he was ready to retire. Yeah. He didn't like the idea of ignorance. So reluctantly, he... Uh, he, he resubscribed. Well, you know, getting back to my point, though, and I understand that John Adams was rather a, a sensitive individual and he didn't take criticism well, but he, he stayed a course where much of our young nation wanted to re resume war with Great Britain, which would have surely bankrupt this country and possibly uh, played into Great Britain's hands at that time. And he kept us out of that war. And 
I think that's the debt of gratitude that I was referring to. Actually, you know, you're calling yourself a novice in history, but you make a very good point because during the Adams presidency, as was reported in the press at the time, there was a tremendous amount of pressure to go to war with England. Uh, the reason was that the terms of the Treaty of Paris, which was signed in 1783, were being abused right. both by America and by England. And you're right. You, uh, for, for a novice, you've, you've, you've got it just right. He he fought against those who wanted to resolve the Treaty of Paris disputes. And, and therein lies the admiration that I have for the man, because I think that if we were to go to war at that time uh, without the financial support that um, a several years of freedom gained for us, uh, it would have bankrupted us, and it, you know who knows what could have happened at that point. Sir, thank you very much for an interesting call. Right. Thank you, sir. And we will go quickly to another. Five nine one seven two double zero for anything you want to ask or assert about American journalism, past or present, or possibly even looking toward the future. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, good evening, gentlemen, and thank you for a very interesting discussion. I was uh, had two thoughts that I would be interested in your comments on. First, uh, in most recently, the White House administration has been found hiring journalists to pose is uh, independent journalists. Many political parties are using uh, the equivalent of broadsheets today on blog sites and on the Internet. And I was wondering how much uh, the past is prologue as far as this new medium of news goes. And secondly, are our concerns with uh, news manipulation going to appear uh, naive in a few years as the major news organizations, which put their papers now on the Internet, will be able to track how individual readers follow specific types of headlines from story to story, and they can more adequately and scientifically market the news in ways we may not even suspect as we're... What an interesting, what an interesting and troubling thought. Interesting and troubling because it's happening, uh, because newspapers, and not just because of online versions, but their, their actual <laughs> paper versions, are doing what uh, television's been doing for a long time, you know, the, the equivalent milt of these uh, focus groups. You know, they want to know what kinds of stories people like, uh, so they increase their style sections, they uh, increase their coverage of women's health issues. I, I'm, I'm not so sure that this is totally a bad thing. I mean, if it's done to the exclusion of other kinds of stories. For instance, uh, Osama bin Laden 10 years ago was not an interesting story, but responsible journalism should have dictated that we be noting, we meaning those American journalists based abroad, that there was a movement building against this country that might lead to violence someday. So we cannot we, we call this enterprise journalism or uh, uh, I, I remember Edge my friend Ed Newman at NBC once saying, investigative journalism, or as we used to call it, journalism. Uh, there still has to be a place for this. But to, to ask consumers what they want, I mean, and, you know, to put more news, for instance, about how, how, to, how to avoid breast cancer, uh, how, to, how, how to help personal nutrition, to me, you know, a newspaper can be expanded. And if one of the ways we're going to expand it is to ask uh, readers, more of what they want, assuming we don't take away what they need, I, I, to me that's not a bad thing. Our thanks to the caller for a very interesting contribution. We go to the phone, uh, rather to the, um, to the commercials again in just a moment, but before we do, I want to read you an email that has come in, 
and I look forward to your response to it after we take care of those commercials. And for that matter, response from our listeners to this challenging email. I proceed to read. Can you explain what motivates the cynicism and negativism of the mainstream media coverage of the war that we are fighting against Islamic fascism? I am tempted to ask, hey, whose side are you guys on? Endless criticism and second-guessing of our commander-in-chief, but not a word condemning the deranged murderers of innocent people. Does their pathological hatred of the president render them incapable of clear, fair-minded, reasonable thought? My guess is that a successful outcome in Iraq is their worst nightmare. The they and their of this thing is essentially uh, referential to American journalists, I gather. These comments do not apply to Fox News. Uh, have, has American journalism generally been unfair uh, in its treatment of the president and in its disdain for the war or particularly for the possibility of, quote, winning that war? That is the issue. We shall return to it uh, with Eric Burns. And for that matter, if you've got views on the same, do instantly uh, uh, give us a call at 591-7200. We return after this. Um, I read you the email, Eric Burns, uh, and uh, it argues essentially that the American press is going after this president with regard to the war that we are engaged in with just as much ferocity and viciousness as was ever shown by the scribblers, the infamous scribblers that you write about in your new book. I, I'm, I, I confess I'm not terribly comfortable with questions like this because they are political as opposed to journalistic, it seems to me, even though I know the references to journalists. Um, let me just simply say briefly that it is obvious that the relationship between this president and the press is one of the worst that we've had in recent you times. You just look at those press conferences. and uh, The press conferences are could be sponsored by that guy who runs the World Wrestling Federation. Exactly he so. Could, he could be announcing them. Uh, and I think whenever there is animosity to that extent, uh, the fault probably lies on both sides. We have some journalists today who, in my mind, are... Uh, uh, approaching the infamous scribblers in their incivility. And we have a president who absolutely, and a vice president, let it be said, uh, two men who make absolutely no uh, 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 qualms whatsoever about their disdain for the media. So obviously, uh, what happens in a situation like this, Milt, is, is that the animosity overwhelms the coverage of the issue. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the phones, 591-7200. And you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening, Milt. I enjoy your program as always. Uh, however, I did have a comment uh, earlier. Uh, I uh, heard you discussing, uh, you and your guest uh, said uh, Rush Limbaugh. You uh, cited him and Al Franken uh, said Rush was uh, more of an entertainer. Well, I have uh, many college-educated friends who, who take Rush Limbaugh as gospel, as a serious commentator of contemporary american i think the guy is a demagogue well doesn't al franken also presume to be a serious commentator well, on contemporary uh, there is america a difference so al franken's audience is very very limited uh rush limbaugh you travel across america and there's scarcely a station where you can't yep. hear rush Lim Quite limbaugh true. on the air i think his audience uh, dwarfs that of franken his station uh, the station that carries him and his other colleagues in this town it's suburban station that they bought after for a while they were blacked out around uh, most um, major markets in the country. Yes. Uh, gets about a, uh, well, in the last Arbitron book, I think it wasn't listed. Or if it was listed, it had about a, a half of 1% uh, 
of the total audience. And you take a station such as uh, WHAS, which is a mainstream station in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he is on there. He is on many, many uh, sure is. mainstream What is one to make of that? The American preference is decidedly for conservative commentators on radio. Eric Burns, what do you make of that? I have no idea why it is that, and it's not just it's not just on radio. It seems to be on op-ed pages too. There is an overwhelming conservative dominance. If you look, I've seen the the, the ratings, the top ten, uh, uh, you know, the ratings for the top ten most popular radio talk shows, and and, and mm -hmm. I think there's one liberal in there. And it certainly doesn't reflect the, the 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 temper of the country. I mean, the country may have turned more conservative than it's been before, but we're not 90% conservative. Uh, I, I I frankly, Milt, am mystified at the reason that that liberal commentators and liberal uh, uh, columnists have not been able to make more of a dent th these days, because there is a large enough audience out there to support some of them. Shall I tell you the reason? Well, sure. I'd love to be enlightened. It has to do, uh, they, the majority of Americans are conservative. They are culturally conservative. Quite apart from issues of foreign policy and quite apart from issues of economic policy, they are offended by the left's embrace, the left's reflexive insistence by now upon abortion rights, upon uh, radical feminism, upon multiculturalism in all of its excesses and uh, all of its uh, essential confusion about prime values. They are profoundly concerned about the maintenance of family and family loyalty and parental responsibility. And they find uh, from the general liberal world uh, represented as much by what they get through mass media as what they get from stated overt liberal politicians, uh, but also in some part from what they get from politicians, they find essentially uh, an ignorance of or an avoidance of or a certain disdain for those traditional values of family, hearth, home, religion, and so on, which uh, are cherished by ordinary Americans, particularly by the time they reach a certain age and begin to form families. Uh, and they are put off by the style of uh, the leftist or the left-oriented liberal subculture more than they are by its particular derivative policies concerning, again, economy or foreign policy or uh, yet other matters. Uh, it's a cultural conservatism which is now regnant in the minds of most Americans, or maybe only in middle America, in red America, red states rather than blue. And yet in the year 2000, Al Gore got more votes for president of the United States yes, than George did. Bush did. Yes, he did. So you would think there would be some TV shows, some radio shows, some mm -hmm. columnists, some greater number than exists today that would represent those views. I think, by the way, that the one particular public figure who helped push America in this direction more than any other in the cultural conservative direction was uh, the last president of the United States before the current one by virtue of uh, his mendacity and his uh, profligate existence. It could well be. Uh, and with that, we pause for some commercials. Then back to the phones on 591-7200. We return to Eric Burns. Have I made clear that I'm really quite enthusiastic for his new book, Infamous Scribblers? It's um, full of wonderful anecdotal material, a considerable historical depth, which we really haven't given you a chance to elaborate upon here. But there's... Um, 
much in the way of sort of social historical interpretation that I found quite persuasive, and all of it is excellently written. Well, thank you, Milt. Uh, it's a good read, as they say. In well, the you know, journalism is about the events of the world. So if you're writing a book about journalism, you are simultaneously writing a book about all those major events that inspire journalists to dip their quills into their uh, inkwells and write. You've done a good deal of writing, and that must reflect something about the trade of uh, electronic journalism, but it leaves you not completely fulfilled. So you have a Dr. Phil, a bit of Dr. Phil in you, do you? God, I hope not. <laughs> I have a PhD in psychology, as he is not, and we don't do pop psychology on this program. But that's uh, a thought. I, I, I find writing to be an immense pleasure. Sure you do. Um, much more satisfying. That's why you do it so well. Frankly, thank you. Uh, than television, perhaps because it endures, uh, perhaps because it allows more complexity, perhaps it cause, uh, because it can be done in a solitary fashion. One doesn't write collaboratively, but one does television collaboratively. So for a variety of reasons, yes, I, uh, I find myself, despite Fox News Watch, which I enjoy immensely, uh, enjoying even more the hours when I can spend writing and with that, back to the phones, 5917200. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I had a comment regarding the uh, liberal radio audience. I think they, they have a home in national public radio, and that might be why we don't see a, uh, a big audience to, to Al Franken or some other type of show. Uh, you view that as essentially a liberal channel, do you? Uh, I, I think it has a more liberal slant to it and provides uh, maybe some, some nice discussion with uh, things, topics that liberals would tend to be open to hearing about. Mm -hmm. You being one of those? Um, yeah, I think so. More, more than, uh, than to the conservatives. Well, I think I agree with your characterization of them. They are essentially uh, left in political orientation. I, I think they are left in political orientation, but I don't think you can compare them. They are not as far left as some of the uh, other more popular radio outlets, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, for instance, are to the right. Correct. So Correct. I'm, I'm not sure they're a balancing force, but I think you make a good point in that they have a leftist tendency, which, which I would distingu distinguish from a, a strong leftist bias. Right. And I like it. It does serve as a, a wonderful news outlet as opposed to entertainment or uh, a political agenda, so to speak. And it also covers kinds of stories that you don't hear, hear elsewhere, uh, too, I think. So let's, uh, give them, let's give them credit for that. There are kinds of stories that appear on Morning Edition and All Things Considered you just don't hear in, in other places. No, it really is a, a wonderful uh, outlet for, for us to have. Well, de gustavus non disputandum est. Uh, you well said, put, Milt. Indeed. Whatever you. A little bit put. of Latin will always do it. That's there's no accounting for taste. Uh, you said earlier, just a minute ago, that writing, of course, is a solitary occupation. Mm -hmm. It is, but occasionally it isn't. Have you heard of Les Frères Goncourt, the Goncourt brothers, E and J Goncourt, who uh, wrote in France, obviously, in uh, the middle of the 19th century, and they say about newspapers, that ephemeral sheet. The newspaper is the natural enemy of the book, as the whore is of the decent woman. Strong sentiment. Yeah, and quite a bit different from journalism as the first draft of history. Yes, I indeed. mean, that's, uh, 
that makes one the parent of the other as opposed to one being a hooker and one being a John. Um, I, I, I tend to think that uh, journalism being the first draft of history is a little better way to look at it. I don't think books and newspapers are natural enemies. Though interestingly, when I think of suddenly of French newspapers as compared, say, to British newspapers, the ideology of the papers is generally more immediately evident in what they do on the news pages. But the French press is particularly that way. Many of their major papers are virtually organs of one or another political party. But you know it. And, and yes, to, they don't either. And to me, if you know it in advance, it's, it's not nearly as egregious as those uh, outlets, which I think are relatively few, that seem to be trying to work their point of view mm -hmm. in through the cracks. Here is another caller on 591-7200. Good evening. Good evening. This is Neil. I'm from St. Charles, Illinois. I'm a, a likely story. Yes, I'm a <laughs> clinical nutritionist, and I am absolutely appalled at the general coverage in the news of health issues. And the re let, let me just explain the reason is not that they're, they have a bias necessarily, but when I talk to news editors, they typically say their only responsibility is to repeat what they are told and a study that is released, for example, the low-fat diet one that came out recently, the results were not significant, yet it got giant headline news and convinced everyone low-fat diets were wrong, yet the people were not on low-fat diets. People hear about vitamin E being harmful, but they never hear about the more thorough study that followed it that exonerated it. Homocysteine is blamed for... Uh, not saving us from heart disease, but it did exactly what it was promised to do in earlier studies, reduce a chemical called homocysteine. That's Sir, harmful. stop right there. You're yes. pursuing a personal crotchet or interest uh, at our cost because time is very short. Do you have anything to say to that? He's right. Um, whenever it comes to a field, science, nutrition, and, and nutrition is a form of science, which requires very specialized knowledge, uh, newspapers and especially television uh, operations very often don't have the people who have the background to to understand the complexities mm -hmm. of that specialized field. Uh, I want to read you an email that has just come in that puzzles me a bit. Perhaps you can interpret it for us. The major debate prior to 9-11 was how to respond to the NASDAQ bubble bursting. The president's response was to reduce taxes contrary to without exception, every liberal news media outlet. Basic Economics 101 principles argue that this was the correct approach, that the president was taking mm -hmm. the correct approach. Some would argue that bin Laden attacked because he thought that there would not be sufficient economic reserves in the U.S., obviously, to respond. Were the early Americans under similar economic attack? Well, they felt they were. And in fact, the primary reason for independence was uh, the belief that we were under economic attack from the Stamp Act, the Intolerable Acts, uh, from the, uh, the the tax on tea that led to the Boston Tea Party. The answer is an unqualified yes. And if we d had not felt we were under economic attack, uh, maybe we'd still be a colony, Milt. That was that was the primary driving force of Sam Adams, the infamous scribblers, and the less infamous scribblers of the period. Yes. You, we talked earlier about some of the stuff you read. Uh, if you had your way and could start a newspaper, you probably could, since they pay you so much for what you, <laughs> for what you do. Uh, what would be the 
What kind of newspaper do we need that we don't have nationally? I wouldn't start a newspaper. That somebody else would start with you as their advisor? I'd start a history magazine. Ah, explain. I'm sorry. That's good maybe, maybe, I, maybe I would tell my people to try to tie their topics into the present as best as, as they mm -hmm. could, that every story that's happening today has tentacles into the past, some go deeper than others, that maybe the best way, the best possible way to, to understand truly and with depth the present is to understand truly and with depth the past. What would be the historical context for or reference for our current war and, for that matter, our current uh, posture towards so-called Islamofascism as a threat? I'm not sure, especially with you looking over at the clock like that, because I know we're getting close to, to, to the end of the time. I fear so. But uh, I, I know that we would have to go back, for instance, one of the tentacles would reach back to post-World War II when the Palestinian state was created. But why was the Palestinian state created? The tentacles would have to reach back further than that. I repeat, there is no event, no event happening today that we couldn't understand better by going back a decade, a century, or maybe even more.